Hello, this is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Friday, October the 29th. And an important thing happened this week. These, these LSAT scores were released, which of course was of major interest and significance in the lives of all those people who want to go to law school. And, uh, you know, thinking back to my years of being involved in the LSAT prep industry, at that time, there were like four or five tests a year. It wasn't the way it is today. But it seemed to me that when, there was, when the scores were released, there were three kinds of people who received the scores and, 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 uh, and were wondering what to do. The first group, uh, interestingly, uh, were the people who scored very, very well. And they were still wondering whether they should do the test again. The second group were the people in the vast... I would say majority, were people who scored in kind of the average range and were wondering, well, whether to do the test again. And the third group were the people who scored, well, not so well, and were, I think, discouraged, but were wondering whether to do the test again. So the theme of today's podcast is, well, you guessed it, whether to do the test again. And as always, I'm joined with Keith Seiska in Texas and Jake Feldman in New York, unless they've moved in the last few days. No, still here. They're all still anchored in to their tutoring and that. So welcome and how are you both, each of you today? Great. Good, thanks. Good thanks. All right, have you also noticed that the scores have recently been released or was it just me? I, no, I was made aware. You were made aware. We were all made aware. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about this is that this stuff works, you know, not only from a practical, strategic law school application level, but also a deep, deep emotional level. And, I, you know, I just had this thought. I want to begin this with a story about a friend of mine who is a very, very prominent Toronto lawyer today. But this brings us back to you know, when we were applying to law school many, many, many years ago. And he was a bright guy, master's degree, always did well in school. He went and did the LSAT without any preparation. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, whatever, a few weeks later, he got his score and turned out that he, uh, he really did pretty poorly, pretty poorly. Okay. Fancy that. Yeah, oh, you know, I mean, how could such a thing have happened? So, you know, his first reaction was discouragement, but then he said, well, I'm going to do the test again. So then he, uh, this was actually around the time that I started LSAT teaching. So, so he got out and he, you know, he did a fair bit of preparation. And actually, it took him a while to get started again, because you know how the first uh, the stage, it was like the first stage of dying or something like that, you know, getting this this horrible score, this deep psychological effect on him. But he went in and he really started preparing. And the second time he got, you know, an average score, still probably too low to get into law school. But, you know, who knows with a master's degree and, you know, some good marketing, et cetera. But, you know, he was really, really emboldened, if you will, by his his, the demonstration that he was able to improve on this. And he thought, well, you know, my God, if I can go from, you know, horrible to average, maybe I can go from average to good. So he got into this for like, it must've been six or seven months. Every time I saw him, he was talking about LSAT, thinking about LSAT. And, you know, I think he was, uh, 
you know, they didn't have logic games quite yet at the time. Okay. But he was, he was actually dreaming about whatever the equivalent was. And, you know, and then he went in again and, you know, and he got, you know, he finally got this, well, actually, uh, he didn't want to open it when he got the thing. He brought it to me and said, here, you open it. And he got this really 90 plus percentile score. There's no question with his background that he was now going to any law school he wanted to. He made it for sure. But you know what he said to me? It's not good enough. I think I'll do the test again. At which time I thought he was seriously out of his mind and he would deny the whole story. So how do you advise people on whether to do the test again? Do it. Do it? Yeah, almost always. A lifetime project? Well, I mean, until you've got an acceptance that your top choice or at least an acceptable choice and a big enough scholarship to fit your budget, then the only way up is to keep banging away at the LSAT. Yeah, I I would say that there it is a rare case that somebody has a score that is sufficient for all of the things that are possible, right? Um, if you've got a score that might get you in, get a score that is likely to get you in, likely than certain to get you in, certain to get you in, then certain to get you in with scholarship, certain to get you in with scholarship, then certain to get you in with a full ride, right? Like there's always more to be gained until such time as the linear programming of timing of your applications and the number of administrations you've got runs out. Um, but, you know, you have, to, you have to take stock at every moment, right? It's October 29th. When are my applications due? Are they due tomorrow? Do I have to submit them tomorrow? How much better can things get? They can get a lot better if you wait until January. They can. They can start getting worse on the other end of January. But. Well, that is a problem, right? I mean, uh, remember that it is possible you get a lower score. Okay, it is possible. And, you know, I always worry that people who get these high scores, if they have more to lose than to gain, but who knows? I mean, I had this image as you were describing that, Jacob. You know, years ago, I one of the many kinds of teaching I've done, I, was, I once ran a private calculus sort of seminar for people having trouble with it, but somehow, somehow your description of that reminded me of calculus somehow. Always some more, always some more, but anyway. <laughs> All right. Um, do you think it's psychological, Keith, do you think it's psychologically healthy though to always be wanting a higher LSAT score? No, I think this is a product of U.S. news and the incentives that the law schools are under and the incentives which they then pass on to the students. And I think that the way that they parse LSAT scores is completely unwarranted by the by the score bands and the, you know, correct statistical interpretations of the data. So you have a crazy world that is rewarding people for doing crazy things. And if the rewards are high enough, you should go do that crazy stuff. Yeah, I, I you want to explain the score band, somebody. Uh, I'm not sure everybody would know what that was. Score bands. Yeah, there's a certain error in the score, a certain luck factor that they account for with these score bands by saying when you get a score, that actually means that your potential is within a range of scores. That's like plus or minus three points typically from where you score. And so I say that the law schools use the data in a way that's unwarranted because I think they make discriminations that are much finer 
than a six point score band. I think they are using individual point differences to differentiate candidates, whereas the data doesn't permit you to do that or shouldn't permit you to do that. So even if you can just get lucky and get one more point, that's better. Well, you know what? I, I think a higher score is always better than a lower score. I think we would all all agree with that. I think that's reasonable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which of the following is the most reasonable inference, or something like that? Yeah, we got that. But they're right. you know they're focusing on the highest score, so even a letdown, as you describe, isn't really as detrimental as it used to be, and it all has to do with the reporting requirements and the incentives of those damn rankings. The rankings are such a double-edged sword. Okay, all right, so let's break this down. Let's start with the disappointed people, the low scorers who probably are discouraged at that moment in their lives. So what would you say to them? Well, the, the, first, the first thing I always say is that we have to remember that the LSAT is not a measure of your intelligence your worth as an intellectual or as an academic, your potential to be a successful student or a successful person. It is a test. It is a test of skills. Now, Keith and I both believe, I think, I don't want to speak for him, and I, and I think you agree with us here that there are skills on the LSAT that are applicable to being in law school. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In law school that are applicable to being a lawyer. Um, and so in my mind, what I would tell people, well, in my practice, I tell people, these are things that are learnable, but you have to go learn them, right? So treat this treat this moment, and I hate to call it failure in the sense that you haven't failed, it isn't the end of the road, but you've hit, you've hit a hurdle, you've hit a roadblock. You need to overcome that. Go and do the work necessary to overcome it. And once you have, that will indicate that you have preparedness for being successful in, in your first year in law school. But these aren't indications that you are somehow innately incapable but you haven't done the right work yet. So you have to figure out what the right work is and then go do it. Okay. Would you generally agree with that, Keith? Is that what you tell the... Yeah, I typically tell people that... People? I, I tell people that it's an opportunity to reflect on their mindset and that it's okay to be disappointed, but that ultimately the skills of the LSAT are important and that I do think that low scores tend to reflect some kind of failure in your performance or your skill set, and that it's time to eat a big old piece of humble pie and say, I need to learn. And I can't just expect a better score. I can't just go sign up tomorrow and take the test in January and hope for a different result. I have to fundamentally change the way that I'm prepping, the way that I'm studying, the way that I'm thinking about this as a task in my prep process or you know in the admissions process because i view the lsat as a springboard that can really teach you important skills that propel you to a successful career and i really reject the view that it is a hoop that you have to jump through just to get into law school or just to get the score you need to get in i'm really more interested in the process and the grit and the you know, the determination that it takes to get a great LSAT score. Okay, so you're focusing on the fact that the LSAT is measuring sort of a, a lifetime toolbox of skills. 
right. that you can use for law school and beyond. And this is a great opportunity to get a head start on law school, if you will. Yeah, you know, certainly. Perhaps, yep. perhaps maybe, maybe that's how you put it. You know, I, I also would add to this that, um, I mean, it sounds trivial compared to the, you know, the insights that the two of you are giving, but, uh, you know, the LSAT is a test of your ability to do the test. And on that, I would, I would add to on that particular day. Okay. And, sure. uh, you know, Hey, uh, tomorrow's another day. All right. And because it's another day, you know, it's another opportunity. So certainly it does not mean that you have no, you know, that your chances for this have sort of run out. Uh, but it is, it is very, very deflating. Okay. And, you know, people have got to internalize uh, the fact that they can do better, that they can do better and that they will do better, I think. All right. So that's, that's uh, sort of a uh, lower end group. What about the range of people who are just sort of, you know, by definition in that middle range, you know, it's sort of like their scores are probably high enough to get into law school, not all the places they apply to, but you know what I mean? They can get into law school somewhere not really where they want to be what do you tell them same thing well, th well those people have something different going on those people have clearly either either already learned those skills previous to beginning to study the lsat or have done a reasonably good job of absorbing the fundamental vocabulary and rhetoric and sort of style of the lsat so far as they can get through part of it so they've done something successful. They understand something. And usually the trap that those people fall in is, oh, I just need to double down. Oh, I just need to study more. I didn't study enough. I'm going to do more. I'm going to find more resources. I'm going to read a different book. I'm going to view more videos. How many videos can you send me so that I can... Yeah, no, that's, that's not good. Points. Quantity that's not without good. quality is not a help at all it's like you know i put a, i actually put a one of my rare comments in the group i think a week or two ago that how did i put it well how i have put in the past is practice without approach can be hazardous i mean you know you've got to understand what exactly it is you're practicing yeah. and yeah, what it certainly is not is as though you've got somebody hitting tennis balls on the other side of the net you know you're just trying to somehow get it back over the net in fact i think you're more likely to you know to make things worse if you do that yeah so for those people let's figure out you know and i wouldn't i wouldn't overshoot this i would i think i would advise people to find three or four specific things to work on that you know you can get a lot of mileage out of i think you're always much better off and i'd be interested in your views of this but my view is you're always much better finding three or four specific things to work on that are going to have a huge payoff, uh, you know, than trying to break it down into, you know, 20 different things or something like that. You, you've hit on the core of the third part of triple review. That's what strategy planning is all about. If you take a section and you've, you've done it once timed and then you did it again untimed and you've broken down every question, you still haven't done anything yet because you haven't figured out what you have to learn yet. That's the whole metacognition piece that your teachers took care of for you for years and years and years in, in primary and, and, and high school. But now that you're an adult, there's nobody there to tell you what to work on next. You have to do that for yourself. I can't tell you. John can't tell you, Keith can't tell you, PowerScore certainly can't tell you. They're a fixed resource. You have to tell you. And the only way to do that is to examine your own work and figure out what did work and what didn't work and how we want to 
alter our thinking moving forward. That's it. Yeah, That's we tend sauce. we tend to frame it this way. What what do you need to do differently on the next practice test? And we go even simpler than what you're talking about, John. We say that really, there, there's nothing more. There's nobody more simple minded than <laughs> I. Trust well, me. Ask around. Well, we say one or two items on your action plan at a time. We want you to identify the the biggest mistake that you made on that section. And your primary goal on the next section is fix that. And until you have fixed that, you really aren't ready for goal number two or three or four or five. So we say you take a couple items, even just starting with one. And if, if so for some of my students, it's as simple as the next time around, I just want you to read the questions before the stimulus. Nothing more. That's your job for one entire section. You know what? To remember I think to that do that. Can often be an excellent thing to practice. I think another thing, you know, I often found this helpful with people is that slow down reading the question and, and pause for a minute and say, what am I actually being asked to do here? Paraphrasing. You know, preach before, all of this before jumping into this type of thing because one of the problems and this is this has always been the case in the world of LSAT all these years you know that I've been aware of LSAT questions okay is that people have a terrible tendency to decide they want to answer the question especially if they don't know what they've been asked especially it makes it even more exciting right <laughs> what could be more exciting than trying to answer, pick out an answer to a question if you don't even know what you're asked, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this, this is that part of, and, and you, you know I don't like to throw people under the bus, and I'm going to first praise her book by saying I really like the loophole. I really do. But this is the part where I think Ellen goes off the rails in her book, is that she advocates this idea that you could know the answer to the question without ever reading the stimulus. She advocates that in LR. She says, look, there are kinds of questions where you're looking for certain kind of language and you can throw out these answers. It's a terrible idea. Don't do that. You have to know what you're being asked. You have to. Well, you clearly have to know what you're being asked. But, you know, I think somebody listening to this might think, what kind of stupidity is this? I mean, this is just so obvious. I mean, why are they talking? You know, I want my 10 minutes back or something like that. But the truth is that people do not do this. No, they don't. You know, they yeah. absolutely don't. And it, uh, so, I mean, you know, oddly enough, uh, you know, the beginning of the journey to improvement probably lies in greater clarity in what you're being asked to do, you know, with Often, the test, yeah. you know. Well, well and what, we, what Keith and I have been on for the last couple of weeks is this idea of humility, <clears throat> which I think, like, I want to, you know, I want to reinforce this over and over again. How can you critically think about what you're being asked to do unless you are humble enough to realize that you may not understand it the first time you read it. If you presume to understand everything you read the first time, you're never going to improve that ability. Actually, you know what, I'd put a, I'm going to put the same idea in a slightly different way. Reading words and understanding the meaning of individual words is not reading anything. Okay, I mean, you know, you actually have, and it requires, I think what people need to understand is that, you know what, the primary reading comprehension test on the LSAT is not the reading comprehension section. The primary reading comprehension test is the constant energy and direction required to keep you understanding what you're being asked to do. 
and that you know what i think everybody with practice can actually do that or at least significantly improve on that agreed yeah absolutely i mean you know from time to time uh i would uh although you know i stopped this because the classes didn't like it they thought i was wasting their time so i actually stopped this okay but i have memory traces in classes of going through logical reasoning sections focusing only on questions for a while you know and getting them to you know what are we actually being asked to do here you know and uh, they didn't some of them really didn't like it by the way those were the low scorers okay you know for sure but it did it did help them uh, there's no question about that so focus on what they're being asked to do focusing on i think a smaller number of things to do you know they, one of the problems with this world of lsat prep is you get up three feet high of you know books who can read that much stuff or you know even begin to absorb it i mean i think it's ridiculous right so that's a problem what about getting people to believe in themselves like a great teacher a great teacher what they all have in common is that they can get people to imagine a better future believe in themselves how do you do that i think it starts with managing expectations or helping them to manage their own expectations i you can imagine score release day and the day or two that follows are the ones that i get the most sort of cold messages and cold emails from people me too and i got i got a couple in the last couple of days of people who said you know i've got my dream school and i need a 160 to be at, at the 50th percentile and um and right now i'm scoring you know in the low 130s um do you think I, you know, is there a way that I can do that by November? And and I said, I, I, there were a number of them. All right. So I'm not talking to you if you sent me that message. There were, there were a couple of you. Um, but it's really important to understand that there are goals, but there are timelines in which those goals are reasonable. And in order to stay intrinsically motivated and believe in one's own ability to improve, you have to set challenges, but they have to be appropriate challenges. Right. They have to be challenges that are there enough to motivate you, but not so great that you're overwhelmed by the challenge. Nobody, nobody improves 28 points in three weeks. Nobody. OK, it does not happen. And so to set that as a goal for yourself is unreasonable. Of course, you will lose your motivation. Of course, you will feel like a failure because you've given yourself a goal that's unreasonable. I am a short guy with short legs. I cannot run a three-hour marathon. If that's my goal, I can't expect to work out for the next three weeks and run a three-hour marathon. It's not going to happen. So you would, you would agree that when it comes to goal setting and expectations, the smaller the step, the bigger the result. I mean, it's that I, called I, that 80-20 principle. It's something like that. Yeah. You I mean, get, you, know, you know, we can't we can't paint it with that broad a brush, but sure. Okay. Small small smaller challenges that are achievable and motivating are the way to go. Set a challenge for tomorrow or for today and achieve that. Stop focusing on what's way downstream because when you do it seems so far off. You'll lose focus. Well, you can't. It, it's hard to visualize, too. You know, this reminds me of I once saw uh, Admiral McRaven giving the commencement address at Texas A&M. You ought to check out this YouTube video. Uh, 
it's a, you know, it's a lesson in motivational speaking, but interestingly, you know, he talks about achievement and goal setting. He says, the first thing you do every day is you make your bed because once you have achieved, you know, that small, but achievable goal, it sets you, I think it was, you know, in the right mindset to go further. And, um, you know, I didn't like it because I frequently don't make my bed, but, uh, you know, I did, uh, I did get the point of it and I think it was a reasonable point. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a reasonable point. It's why you need scaffolding. It's why you need structure when you study. And that's, yeah. that's what I'll, that's what I'll tell everybody. I, it doesn't matter whether you're the 128 or the 147 or the 168, right? And you're looking for improvement of two points or 10 points or 20 points. <laughs> what's your structure? What is the structure of your learning? What are you doing every day? I don't want to know what you've read. I don't want to know how you think about things. I want to know what you do. What's your practice? Because if you don't have a practice, if you're stabbing at this thing willy-nilly, you're not giving yourself the best opportunity to actually grow. The only way to get stronger is to go to the gym. You got to go. What you do there then will become critical once you've made the habit of going to the gym every day. But if you don't know that you're doing it, can't help. Yeah, well, that is that is right. And, you know, a wish to improve is different from setting a goal to improve. Yeah. You know, that is for sure. So people have to do that, but I think they also need, you know, if we analogize this, analogize this to a training program, and, and it is, okay, it, it's a training program. You know, I think that there are, better and worse times of the day to be doing this stuff. You know, for a lot of people, they will get a lot more out of getting up an hour earlier and doing an hour in the earlier part of the day than like three hours in the evening or something like that. And I think that that's also uh, an important principle here of sort of time management and organization, which is going to be important. But it is, uh, it's not, it's not easy to motivate people when they're deflated. Yeah, you know, when true. people need motivation, I send them to Jake. The great motivator. <laughs> I'm the cheerleader. I mean, we just we work well together because we kind of have a good cop, bad cop thing going. And the students that I help more are the ones who suffer from overconfidence. And I'm pretty good at helping that, you know, reviewing the, the deficiencies in their knowledge. The ones who are lacking confidence I don't have as much success with them. I tell them, come work with my partner because he's good at instilling confidence and building people up. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, it, 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 may, it may be having the kids in the house, but this idea of positive reinforcement has become so much a part of my practice. Um, and, and, and it's true, like ultimately, there are a lot of people out there who don't thrive on the negative energy of, of growth mindset. And so there, it's really hard to find positivity when you've been brought up fixed and you think of the world as a fixed uh, as a fixed entity in which you exist in a certain position. And if you're if you're to move through it and grow through it, you need to understand that, hey, little I had a student today. He's he's a, a, a sophomore in college. He struggled for a long time with motivation. And I saw a small change in him. It was small, but he had organized his, his work for the weekend and he had put it in a notes thing on his iPad. And I took 15 seconds just to give him that small moment of affirmation. Hey, I see you. I see what you did. I'm proud of you. That was really good work. 
And look, he's 19 and he doesn't care about anybody in the world. But there's a glint of a smile knowing that there's somebody out there that recognizes effort in him and that makes him redouble the effort the next time. If you don't have that person in your life, you better have that. Right. But I think that for for most people, um, there's a lot of negativity in the world. And, you know, you don't want to have negative people around. You don't want to listen to this stuff. But the real issue is not the external negativity. It's the internal negativity. You know, this sort of idea that, you know, people are limited in terms of where they, in terms of where they go. And, uh, and I, you know, I think that actually most of the world is so mediocre that most people just through the power of their goal setting mind and imagination can probably get anywhere they want. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know, why is my mind in Texas? Oh, maybe because I'm talking to Keith. That's why my mind is in Texas. So, so George, George, uh, George Bush made a uh, speech apparently, okay, at his, at his high school and he was giving the commencement speech and you probably know this. He said, you know, uh, congratulations, congratulations to all of you. Congratulations to the A students, absolutely. And for those who are the C students, well, you can be president too. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. What a there, great message. You know, and, there, and there's some truth in that. So, I mean, there's definitely, there's definitely, you know, sort of a, a psychological aspect to this. So, I mean, it seems to me it's a question of finding a workable combination and integration between the psychological, emotional, the practical in terms of, you know, how to map out the time management or what it is you're actually doing. And discerning what are those three, four, five skills, you know, that you're going to work on to start gradually moving you towards a higher LSAT score, which will, of course, lead to admission to law school, which will mean that, yes, you will become a lawyer. And I want to stop there because I don't know whether that's good or bad. Okay, but you can decide that. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't want to weigh in on that one. I'm I'm the only one in the group that's not a lawyer, but I'm I'm perfectly now, now, happy. Now tell me, Jake, is that good or bad? I don't know. I don't have a counterfactual to weigh it, it against. Just is. But, uh, it just is. This is what I am. Well, and I think this is an important point. As we bring this to an end today, here we have Jake, clearly a success story, clearly somebody who many of you look up to as a mentor. And you know what? He's not a lawyer or a law student. Nope. And in just fact, see my how under- much my- you can achieve if you don't my go under- there. My undergraduate degree is in music. That's it. Well, that's why you, you do well it. on standardized tests. I've noticed right. that over the years, actually. Right. You know, the, the students I've had, there's definitely a, a symmetry between yeah. the kind of mind that studies music and the kind of mind that does LSAT questions. I don't doubt so, it. So maybe the way to think about Jake is he makes LSAT musical. <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, why I, not? I don't, I don't sing to my students in session, but, uh, but other than that, I'll tell what you. if they pay enough? I'll, I'll figure out what my nightly fee is. I'll work. <laughs> okay. Out. All right. So let's, uh, let's kind of wrap this up for today. Uh, anybody want to sort of throw a bit of summary? So a bit of a, something practical, something motivational and with the hopes that, you know, everybody can believe in themselves. So what do you think, Keith, Jake? Retake. Now, come on, Keith, you're not just going to send him to Jake on this. No, retake. That's my 
motivational speech. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Re- retake, but retake when you're ready. Don't retake in November just because, ah, you know, I wanted a 154 and I got a 132. Don't retake in November. Retake, but take your time. Do it right. You know, do it with substance. Don't just flail because you're desperate to get out of the house or to move on to a new career. You've got time. Do it the right way. All right. I guess I have two, two things I used to say to my classes. One, practice without approach. Definitely hazardous. You got to know what it is you're practicing. And on the more sort of emotional, psychological, it's winning doesn't require the will to win. It requires the will to prepare to win. So that's basically where you are. We'll wrap it up today because we're all busy. So once again, thank Keith Seisk in Texas and Jake Feldman in New York, as is customary. Where where do they reach you? What are your coordinates? Uh, TripleReview.online, or you can find us on Facebook all over the place. Um, I'm also Nexus Academics, uh, and Keith is Last Call Bar Academy. All right, Keith. Yeah, thanks. want to add? Come chat with us if you guys are, you know, if any of our listeners have got a score and they're unsure what to do. Jake and I do free consultations and um, we're willing to listen to your story and see if it's an exception to the rule. And if not, we'll tell you that's not an exception. You know, buckle up, start studying and uh, and get ready to retake and eat your spinach. Right. (laughs) Right. And uh, actually, you know, we should do a session on uh, LSAT prep food, you know, the whole diet stuff. That might be interesting. Actually, there is something to that. We ought to do that. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And actually, uh, for more of this, you can meet Jake and Keith at the LSAT study group, Facebook.com groups, LSAT study group. And enough for today.